and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We trust you'll benefit from our unique lineup of CEOs, generals, and leaders from all business sectors. Whether you're an aspiring, inspiring leader or a seasoned leader seeking further motivation, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and world-class leadership advice. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast. Um, I'm very lucky to have Robin Horsfall. And Robin um, has had a fascinating career and life and continues uh, in his 60s to be a powerhouse of writing great books. His book is Fighting Scared, but he's also done uh, poetry as well. Um, served in the SES and the Parachute Regiment as a bodyguard, a mercenary, a karate instructor, and just a fascinating man. And I've followed Robin for a while on LinkedIn and and what he writes about makes an awful lot of sense so if you if you follow him you'll find some of his writing fascinating without further ado welcome Robin it's good to have you on the show nice to be here Jonathan yeah you um before we uh before we switched on you asked me to give a brief rundown of my life um and that's uh how how to be brief with 66 years um but I'll try um, I joined the British Army when I was 15 years old in 1972. I wanted to join the Royal Army Medical Corps and ended up in the Parachute Regiment as an infantry junior leader, two years at Oswestry, um, then went to the Parachute Regiment, uh, from the Parachute Regiment to the SAS when I was 21, and got in would just be just after my 22nd birthday, which was very young for SAS. Um, I saw an awful lot of... Uh, action with the paras and the SAS, but purchased my discharge from the army in 1984. I was a bodyguard to some famous people and finally the bodyguard to Rafiq Hariri, who was the prime minister of Lebanon. Um, my wife put her foot down when I came back from Mozambique. I was a major in the FARC forces in Mozambique as a company commander. And um, I had some issues with that war um, that had to be dealt with at home. Um, I finally settled down and became a martial arts instructor for 30 years in London and um, developed my organization, London Shukai Karate, up to a thousand uh, students, 99% of whom were children. And my oldest son, Alex, is now the chief instructor and runs that. Um, I broke my neck training and uh, decided that I had to change direction and went off to university to do a, as an undergrad at the age of 56 and graduated at the age of 59. Nobody wants to sit next to their grandpa at school. <laughs> uh, and um, I'm now a public speaker and a writer and a blogger. And um, I'm, I've spent the last eight years leading the Northern Ireland Veterans Movement um, with, to try to stop the vexatious prosecution of soldiers who served in Northern Ireland. I recently applied to be a uh, non-executive commissioner on the new uh, reconciliation commission that's being set up under uh, Sir Declan Morgan. So we'll see where that goes. Well, that? <laughs> that's a that's a great uh, thumbnail sketch. Congratulations! And what a what an action-packed life. And and I think it's very interesting that the last thing that you were mentioning about uh, the persecution of Northern Ireland uh, the soldiers who served in Northern Ireland. And I've had a couple of my friends recently who served there who had to go, as it were, dark 
and come off the internet and everything because their family and everybody else was under threat from the IRA because they were then having to go back some 20 to 30 years later for things that had happened in Ireland that they were now having to go into court about, whereas the IRA don't have to do that. It, it does seem very unfair. What's your own view on that? I'm sure you have. Well, no, the, the IRA and the UDA, they, they all, the, all the people involved with the terrorist organizations do have to go back and do it as well. Um, but the reason the British soldiers were focused upon by the investigation committees is there was a paper trail to all of them because everything that the soldiers did was recorded where everything that criminals did was not. So errors were made sometimes um, and occasionally uh, people behaved badly and they were convicted. Um, but soldiers that were investigated at the time and cleared were then brought into a political narrative that wanted new investigations on what was called new and compelling evidence, which didn't exist, not be in order to get a conviction, but in order to change the narrative, to change the story that was being portrayed to the new generations of Northern Ireland and uh, the Republic of Ireland as well, to give the impression that the British Army was at some way at fault over there and were occupying the country and oppressing Catholics which was not the truth at all. In fact, the soldiers went there and prevented a probably probably prevented a civil war. Um, so it was a political purpose, the political motive behind these um, repeated calls back to court, and um, that was what we fought to stop. Mm. Uh, and we've got the legislation going through Parliament this uh, in September this month um, that will pass through the House. And then um, we've had resistance from um, both sides of the political divide in Ireland against, uh, but we, the, we as in the major vast majority of the veterans have supported it because it will stop the prosecutions. And um, for those people that cooperate, it will give immunity from prosecution. Yeah. So um, our mandate was to do that and we'll have done it by the end of September. And then the uh, new commission comes into place. Great. Well, look, good luck with that. And and thank you for what you've done on behalf of so many others. And um, I, I do recall in my time serving with the Green Howards that a number of my fellow officers, some were Catholic, some were Protestant, some had no religious affinity at all, and the soldiers the same. And so I remember during my time in South Amar, someone was sort of spitting at one of my soldiers and saying, you Protestant bastard. And he goes, no, I'm Roman Catholic. He goes, what are you doing working for them, the other side? He goes, look, you know, we're a mixture of Roman Catholic and Protestant. We all get on with each other. Why don't you guys get on with each other? So that yeah. was that was quite a good retort. Um, we, in this program, love leaders like yourself to share other people that you found inspiring. So when you find inspiring leaders and they have other people who've inspired them, they've got to be quite special people. Mm -hmm. And we talked before we went live on air about two people that you have found uh, inspiring. You said there was a number of people that you work with very special, but inspiration is quite different. Do you want to explain mm -hmm. what why inspiration is so much different for you and who the two were that, that you're thinking of? Well, the, the, let's start with the two people I'm thinking of. Um, the first one was when I was 16 years old and I had to, I was a boy soldier and I had to go to Aldershot to um, do some of the tests for be, becoming a paratrooper later on. And one of those tests was to shuffle across two scaffolding poles, 65, meet, 65 feet up in the air, um, in the middle of which there were two clamps that you had to step over, fully exposed from, and it appeared that you would fall 65 feet if you, if you slipped off. 
16 years old, I shuffled to the center, couldn't lift my leg to step over the clamp. I was too scared. My knees shook and I froze. And a corporal called Mick Lee came up the other side, a physical training instructor. He walked out to the center, took my hands and pushed me back gently to the beginning and then let go of me and said, come on then. And he walked backwards over the clamps, walked backwards over the shuffle bars. And I followed him, stepped over. And then he said, right, now go around and do it again, which I did. That inspired me because he didn't isolate, humiliate or intimidate me. He didn't ridicule me. He didn't put me down. He built me up. He understood where I was coming from. He understood my fears and he helped me to overcome them. He helped me to grow and develop. And so at that moment in time, I would have followed him to hell and back because that was the effect that that kind of understanding and leadership had on me. That was mentorship at its at its very, very best. And the second was my first sergeant major in the special air service, my training wing sergeant major called John Lofty Wiseman. And um, he was a, a very sharp-minded man, uh, extremely affable, humorous, funny, uh, and very, very knowledgeable. But he treated everybody with a great deal of respect, and he was a, a listener. And uh, you always felt that he was on your side, even when he was punishing you. Um, so, you know, um, I, I, I did think that once I passed essay selection, that he they would all be like him. And I was disappointed to discover they weren't. But um, and he never lost that. He's never lost that personal touch, that um, leadership by example um, that um, that inspired me at that time. And um, he's still alive. He's in his 80s. Mick is also still alive, living in North Wales. And, um, you know, I, I still value those memories very, very much. Mm. Very special people, people who inspire you are people you will follow. When somebody turns around and says, follow me, you follow them. When somebody says, jump, you say, how high? Um, they, those are very rare. There's an awful lot of people in the world I admire. But to be inspired, that's that's leadership. Leaders inspire you. They don't manage you. A manager and a leader are two very, very different things. Um, to lead people, you need to inspire them. You need They need to want to buy into your um, method of thinking, your way of doing things. So true. And and the stories are, are very powerful for me. Uh, the, the first one resonates strongly because when I was doing uh, the beat up, which the Royal Signals did with the Royal Engineers, we had a corporal who was not like Mick Lee. He was the one that abused me and shouted at me and called me all sorts of swear words uh, and told me I was useless and I was going to fail. And I remember there was one, you know, run down death was it no long valley uh in the mud up to my sort of ankles and one of the young sappers was struggling and i was at the back encouraging him and he said carry his pack i go but but staff i think it was probably the expression wasn't he had to call him staff i've got my own pack he said i know stop and carry his put your arms through the front and carry his pack so i had both packs and of course the little spring chicken he ran off because he hadn't got his pack <clears throat> and he just kept abusing me and telling me i was useless get on the jack wagon you're never going to make it you're not good enough but actually just the stubbornness in me made me resist him and eventually he got irritated and got the guy back and took his pack back it pretty much wrecked me that that particular run i was shattered but that was the opposite of mick lee and when i meet people like mick lee yes it, it it inspires me forever john griffin who also served as a 
troop commander at Hereford was my commanding officer when I was his adjutant. I would do anything for him. A really inspiring, very modest man. Um, also, um, General John Stokoe, who served undercover in Northern Ireland. Again, a really courageous man, served with the Grenadier Guards as a Royal Signals Officer. Um, they really inspired me. And then Lofty, I do remember when doing uh, resistance to training and escape and evasion training in Germany and when I was in the electronic warfare unit, uh, Lofty came down with various others and trained us. And the man was a house. He was huge, but had a lovely way with us all and had us mm. all eating out of his hands. And he must have been yeah. doing this so many times. But thank you for that. Let's talk about some of your amazing experiences, particularly, I mean, to join at 17, the powers, get into the SES at 22. That's incredibly young. I mean, I'm I'm looking at my children who are sort of 27 to 31. Uh, and, and to think that you were just 22 years old when you went in, phenomenally young. And, and then lots of action. One of the pieces of action that you were involved in uh, behind the back of the building was the Iranian embassy siege where you were part of the B squadron team. Do you want to give us a a, a, a bit of a sense of what really went on because films have been done about it, but it's not the truth. What was, no. what, what are you able to tell us about what went on as you prepared to go in and what happened as you went in? Is there anything you could share? Well, the only portrayal of that mission that's been done properly and very well done was by Louise Norman and Peter Taylor, which was the BAFTA winning BBC documentary, SAS Embassy Siege. And I recommend that people want to know the true story that it's, it's there for people to see. Um, six Arabistani terrorists took over the Iranian embassy in London uh, in April 1980. Um, 48 hours later, we were on the ground in the building next door, which was the Royal College of General Practitioners. And nobody knew we were there. Nobody had heard of the SAS outside of the British Army at that time. And we'd been training since the, since the Munich um, Olympics of 1972, where um, Palestinian terrorists had murdered the uh, Israeli Olympic team to prepare for exactly this kind of situation. And um, after six days, the um, the terrorists murdered um, the Chargé d'Affaires, a man called Lavazani, and uh, threw his body out of the house, at which time Margaret Thatcher gave William Whitelaw the command to uh, give permission to the military to mount an assault because they were threatening to kill another one within the next 30 minutes if their demands weren't met. Over the six days, we prepared a very good deliberate plan. There were six teams of eight, so six, eight, 48 of us that assaulted the building. Um, There's 55 rooms, five floors in the basement. And, um, and we, uh, we tried to simultaneously hit every floor exactly the same time in every entry point. Um, over the next, over the following seven minutes, we um, killed five terrorists, captured one. They murdered one hostage as we went in, and we rescued 19 people. Um, so um, it was an extraordinarily successful seven minutes, um, that was, which is what the training was for. And um, it was um, it was it's a, it's a famous piece of British history. Mm, it certainly is. Well, you know, thank you. For what you and your colleagues in B Squadron did that day, it it became legendary, and I think uh, it was part of the what made it so special was, as you say, the training 
over the previous eight years. No one knew we had this capability. Uh, and then it was just used with great success. And of course, the other side didn't know what we do. Part of the problem these days as Navy SEALs and, and special forces operators tell their story is they start to give the other side you know, the modus operandi. Uh, do you think that's yeah. a problem or is it not so much a problem because they probably know already? I mean, what's your thought? Um, I think it was a big advantage at that time. And then we went off and sold our skills around the world. The British government, the SAS was the only profit making part of the British army. Um, and uh, we were off around the world teaching those skills to everywhere because uh, everyone was having a terrorist problem, hostage taking terrorist problem at the time. But things have changed in the modern world now. You've got the suicide terrorists who um, simply want to die for their cause and take as many people with them as they can. So the methods have changed. Um, the selection process uh, is the same. You've got to get the man. You've got to do the training. You've got to invest the money so that you can actually um, deal with these situations uh, as and when they arise. Um, it's... Um, there are secret things that people know. There are pieces of equipment that have never been used, and um, they're still secret. Mm. And if people give away that kind of information, then, you know, they should be taken to task for it. Mm. But the actual adventure story that the world loved to, to, to listen to and read and, um, and get out there is, um, you know, it, it, I, I don't think it does a great deal of harm. And in some ways, it can inspire the soldiers of tomorrow. I get blamed by lots of... Um, Lots of uh, former paratroopers now are 20, 20 years younger than me and have retired and say, I joined the army because I read your book. <laughs> so, um, well, that's said, that. and your, blame, book, your, book, me. your book is fighting scared, isn't it? Just to, yeah. my yeah. autobiography, the story of my life up to my mid 40s is, is fighting scared. Yeah. And that includes the Iranian embassy siege. It does. It? Yeah. 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 Fascinating. And, and in there, what other, I mean, you, as you say, you uh, saw lots of action. What other events of action do you think are uh, that people would find interesting and, and worth well, mentioning? It, they are all in the story there. Um, I did five tours of Northern Ireland, three with the Paras and two with the SS. I laid on a bomb in the Ballymurphy accidentally um, late at night um, in, the, in January 1976. What? Yeah. You laid on a bomb? Yeah, I was, I, mean, um, I was, I was, it was dark. It was Jan early January. It was freezing cold. It was nighttime. And I laid on some uh, open ground to cover a patrol that was going into a, a bar called Kelly's bar. And my magazine scraped on something metallic on the floor and I pulled away a bit of grass and there was a, a galvanized bucket with a taped on lid and, um, you know, quickly skedaddled around the corner and told my patrol commander, and when Ato took it to parts, the ammunition technical officer took it to parts. It had uh, 20 pounds of co-op explosive, two ounces of frangex, an electric detonator, and a load of iron castings out of a car. And it was pointing towards the post office wall. So, yeah, that was uh, one of my... Uh, I got shot at several times in Northern Ireland, um, but never, um, you know, um, never had a, a major gunfight over there. Um, I did two tours undercover there with the SAS, and um, but I saw more action as a as a soldier in Mozambique and Sri Lanka than I saw in the, my time. That's very different. Um, in Mozambique, sorry, sorry, sorry. I was a company commander. Robbie, just freeze. Just for a moment. So it's okay. <clears throat> we'll stay with it. Yeah. So you said you saw more action 
in Mozambique, which I, I haven't mm. been to, I, I went briefly with my boss, the general. We visited Mozambique very briefly. Um, and Sri Lanka, I have been uh, there mm. on, on holiday, nothing like the operations you were doing. You saw more action there. Tell us, tell us more about that. Yeah, Sri Lanka, I was only there for four months. Um, I realised after four months I was on the wrong side because of the genocide that was being committed against the Tamil people in the north. Mm-hmm. Um, but while I was there, I was training the officer cadets um, in the final phase of their training to, be, to become platoon commanders. And um, I was right on the edge of the war zone there. So um, I wasn't only... Uh, training the officers we were sitting on the edge of the war zone taking fire sometimes but um i was also the most senior medical person on the on the battlefront as well so um but i um i realized after a very short period of time what was going on and uh, was powerless to do anything about it rather than leave so i i came home with uh, mozambique i was there for 15 months wow and it was very much an infantry war um, without air support, without um, heavy artillery, apart from Katusha rockets and um, and 81 millimeter mortars and African troops who were absolutely phenomenal. Um, they're as brave as their leaders, and um, they were they were just absolutely wonderful people to live and work with. Death was um, a daily occurrence. So I had I had people dying of malaria if we had a cold night. Um, it wasn't just the battlefield stuff. It was uh, in warfare generally in the past people die more of disease than they do of actual gunshots and battlefield battlefield injuries so it was um it was a long drawn out period of time for me um i didn't have any choice i needed to do the job i needed the money but i was also on the right side and there were some thrilling things that happened some terrible things that happened to me down there as well Mm. Um, but uh you know that i some of the things in fighting scared i I didn't tell my wife until I wrote the book many years later. And she said, ah, now I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you're very lucky to have uh, a, mm. a very special wife. I, I saw her when we had our warm-up chat. And uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So few so few have the longevity of marriage that you do when they're in the forces, but particularly when they're in the parachute regiment, which is away a lot, or special forces, which are away even more. What do you think is the secret to success of your marriage, if I was to ask you that, or your wife? Uh, uh, I think it's all down to the woman. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. You know, um, I um, when, when I met Heather, I was on SS selection in 1978, and she's a Hereford girl. And um, see, I was an absolutely dedicated soldier. My, my, my mother had died. Um, and my father, stepfather, divorced, was divorced. And um, so the army was my home, my life. Um, I struggled to make friends. Um, I got my self-esteem from doing my job as well as I possibly could um, so that I could prove that I was as good as the next man. So I was absolutely devoted and dedicated and, you know, um, soldier. That was my image. That was my raison d'etre. That's who I wanted to be. And um, she stepped into my life and saw through that and um, gave me back my humanity. But she gave me far, far more than that. She gave me my children. She gave me a life that was full of uh, a great deal of joy and happiness and uh, still does. Um, And, um, you know, we've got uh, five kids, 
10 grandchildren and six great grandchildren now. Um, longevity, I think, you know, you have to need one another and you have to learn very, very quickly to be loyal and faithful to one another as well. Wow. Well, what a what a special couple you are to have got through that. And, uh, you know, all, all power to what you both did to to work on that and her and her patience with you being away so often. Now, there's many things we could talk about, but let's just go through a few tips and advice that you'd share with people, um, because there's so much wisdom and experience you've got there, Robin. Uh, darkest moment in your life and what it taught you, which would you pick out? There must have been many, I'm sure, but what you learned from a dark moment. Yeah, I, I don't think I would want to go into the darkest moments, um, but I could pick one particular moment that was... Um, foundational i suppose which was um when i first joined the uh, first four or five weeks in the army and a big lad called mick uh said to me do you want me to make you shut up and i didn't realize this was fighting talk and he walked across the room and punched me and i ended up lying flat on my bed looking up at him in shock and i didn't get up and fight back and that made life extraordinarily difficult for me for the next the next year or so because um having not fought back it left the door open for everybody else to step into the frame and copy his example so um it taught me that you know you you have to be game for the fight as a young man um living amongst men you have to be game for the fight um win or lose you have to go for it you have to do it and uh, if you if i hadn't have done that at the time, if I jumped up off the bed, leapt at him and got my head kicked in, which he would have done, um, I would have had a far more comfortable experience over the following year without any doubt at all. Um, young men need to be game for the fight um, in order to survive in male company. Yeah, it's quite brutal, isn't it, if we're being honest about it? Yeah. Uh, and bullying is still rife in, in any organizations. And it actually doesn't have to get physical. They just need to know that, that they're threatening you and that if they think that you wouldn't go physical, they'd take advantage of it, won't they? Yeah, Mick Mick wasn't a bully. He was never a bully. He was just, um, I, I think I was just gobbing off too much. And um, <laughs> and he he gave me the opportunity to, to shut up and I never realized what, what, it, what it meant. Um, and, um, you know, so um, he was, he definitely wasn't a bully, but the people that followed his example and operated in groups, and it wasn't the physical side of it. It's not the physical side of bullying that's the worst part. It's the humiliation and isolation that's the worst part of bullying. So um, when you when you switch genders and go across to females who are far more articulate as well, you know, they can be extraordinarily cruel uh, isolating people and uh, opening up, opening up weaknesses in people. Yeah. So um, that bullying, bullying, is something I do tend to, I can spend hours actually talking to, and I do talk to college students about it a lot. And when I was teaching children martial arts, I used to talk about it too. Yeah, uh, and I mentioned great wisdom. And and funny enough, I'm just smiling to myself, thinking that you've now made a profession out of gobbing off, and uh, <laughs> yeah. people pay lots of money for it. So it wasn't that bad after all. Um, no. so you, with the a thousand people that uh, students that you had in your martial arts over the 30 years, um, clearly helping younger people make something, sharing wisdom and experience with them is something that you like doing, Robin. 
And um, if you went back to see yourself age 16 to 18, when you were there in the, in the Paris, um, what bit of advice would you give to yourself now, age 66, looking back those 50 years, this matters and that doesn't? What, what advice would you give? Oh, that's uh, that's that's a pretty tough question. Um, giving yourself advice, looking back with all the wisdom and experiences you have in hindsight. Mm-hmm. Um, if there was a, another sixteen-year-old who was struggling with the same issues that I struggled with, and there were a lot of those when I was teaching kids martial arts, um, depending on who they were, I mean, you can turn around to a Uh, a a masculine strong struggling intelligent boy and say look this is what you need to do and these are the reasons why but you might equally come across an effeminate um, um, homosexual boy who's suffering for for different reasons but suffering the same kind of indignities and so you the advice you give one is going to be different from the advice you give the other Um, but um, believing in yourself and uh, learning that there's nothing wrong with you there's something wrong with every bugger else <laughs> um is uh, is a good place to start and um find something you're good at and focus on that so that you have that to hold on to when the world seems to be falling apart i can run faster than you my maths are better than you i can create this music what can you do whatever it is that you can be good at can be the foundation for a very successful life. Yeah, I like that one. And we'll go around the Inspiring Leadership Compass. I mean, you've developed probably many models of leadership, but I think your practical down-to-earth view is uh, most helpful. But if I just pick up these topics and see what top tips you'd offer people from your experience. Um, Moral question. What did you learn when you let your values, whatever your values are, slip? Um, yeah, um, if you have core values that you build your life and your face and your experience and your everything about you on that, that's where your integrity comes from, that your integrity comes from your core values. Mm. When you, for circumstances that might be beyond your control or because, you know, you've allowed temptation to undermine them, uh, you let yourself down, um, Maybe other people don't even know, but you know. And um, you have to turn around to yourself and say, that was a mistake. I'm never going to let that happen again. Um, it doesn't mean you're a failure. It no. just means you, you needed to learn that lesson over and over, over again. When you, lose, when you lose touch with your integrity, lose touch with yourself, and lose um, your core values, then... Um, it's a struggle to have any dignity. Um, and we all need that. We all need our own sense of dignity and pride. Yeah, definitely do. And somebody once said to me, which I thought was quite good, dignity is an innate right. You're born with, we're all born with dignity. We all, respect can be earned, can be lost, but dignity is something that you, you yeah. is a is an innate right to everybody. You must remember to treat them with dignity. Um, the next one's PQ, meaning and purpose. Uh, you've done some fascinating things and continue to to do fascinating things, whether it be public speaking or writing or blogging. Uh, what gives your life meaning and purpose and how would you advise others to find a sense of meaning and purpose in what they do? Um, 
people get meaning and purpose from lots of different part, lots of different for lots of different reasons in life, depending on their indiv individual personalities. But for me, um, what gives my life purpose is family. It's always family. Uh, everything that I get when I get into involved in a deep discussion. Um, it always comes back to home, it comes back to wife, it comes back to children and parents and love and understanding and frustrations and the lessons that come from having a family. And um, sometimes I feel very sympathetic towards politicians because the struggles that we have as parents are just hugely exaggerated when you say you know, you're now in charge of a country. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's um, and everybody wants to everybody has their different point of view. So mm. family, more than anything, the joys. I look back at the most wonderful parts of my life and they are all memories that have my wife and my children and sometimes my grandchildren in them as well um, above everything else. Yeah, lo lovely. And, and so nice to hear for someone who's been a, a, a tough fighter in very tough situations. Health is something that you and I spoke about before we went live, mental and physical health. And uh, you had to battle with cancer. I don't know whether you want to share your story about that and, and, and what your tip is about looking after your mental and physical health that you've learned from that experience, Robin. Yeah. Um, when I do my talks for corporations and um, events, um, sometimes I focus on overcoming adversity. Now, you can go back to that adversity with overcoming bullying, um, battlefields, all sorts of things. But overcoming the struggles with uh, cancer, I had bladder cancer. Um, I'd been doing some charity work with Movember. And so I was very particular about um, having my prostate checked every six months or so. And if you want a piece of advice about getting your prostate checked, always go for a lady doctor because they've got smaller fingers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I always had it checked. But I had pain in my stomach and um, I had my prostate checked. It was fine. So they gave me painkillers. And then about two years later, I was out for a run and I suddenly started peeing blood. And um, uh, I went immediately. I was living in Prague at the time. And I went, went to hospital, got scanned and um, went through the whole process of um, discovering that it was a tumor, that it was malignant, that my bladder needed to be removed with my prostate and all my uh, lymph nodes, uh, four months of chemotherapy, um, the struggle that that was for me and for my wife, um, the, uh, recover the operation, the recovery period. And the, again, changing direction in life. You know, what can you do now, Robin? You know, there you were running around the park, you know, and uh, being Mr. Uh, stand up and thump the table on your soapbox at the Northern Ireland Veterans Marches. And how are you going to cope now? So, um, you know, you can't run up and down hills anymore. So, but my fingers work, my voice works. And so um, I had to really, really change my focus onto my writing and my speaking. Um I counsel people who, my friends and some people that get in touch with me uh, about living and coping with cancer, on uh, living and coping with chemotherapy, which isn't the same for everybody because there are lots of different types of chemotherapy. But for me, it was an extraordinarily traumatic and trying period. I had to have 12 sessions over four months. 
and I phoned the hospital on the last one and said, I'm not coming in. And they said, why not? And I said, I'm just too scared. I can't do it one more time. And they said, don't worry, that's fine. Uh, we'll move on from here. Um, they poison you. You get ill when you start to feel better. They poison you again. And um, it was a mental trap as well. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't read. I couldn't remember. I couldn't even watch a television program. Um, so I ended up curled up on my bed with my cat lying beside me. My wife fed me, even though I didn't want food. And um, that kept my weight the same. Um, I learned that um, my hair didn't fall out very much on the top. My mustache remained in place, much to the joy of my kids and my grandchildren, especially who wouldn't have recognized me without it. But my eyelashes fell out. And I never realized that your eyelashes actually help to evaporate your tears. They run, they run, your tears run down your eyelashes and they evaporate. When you haven't got them, you tend to be crying all the time because that doesn't happen. That was a, oh. interesting. And I, during chemotherapy, I didn't sleep for the first four weeks. I didn't sleep and I got, I got sleeping tablets in the end to, um, to give me a break from the trauma. And it was as if all my dreams had lined up and they flickered through at an amazing speed when I finally uh, dropped into sleep for the first time in four weeks. And I had like a, um, you know, when you get a, a book and you flick the pages and like that, it was like that with dreams for about, for one night. And they, they'd all saved up and then they all just unloaded at one in one go. So that was, was a, an interesting experience. But I live with it now. Um, I, I never have to get up for a pee in the nights because I've got a bag that goes down the side of the bed. So that's one uh, part of the cloud with a silver lining. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, so five years on, I was supposed to have been dead after two years. So I'm, I'm on a bonus every day. Yeah. It's not a fight. It's not a fight. There's nothing to fight in cancer. It's an illness. And I, I found it very frustrating to when, when people very kindly would say things like you a man like you you can deal with this it's just not a lot of fight you know well no it's not you have no choice you yeah. can either you you just have to suffer it and uh, no uh, i um you know this means a lot to me my brother's a reconstructive cancer surgeon um so um when people have removed cancers graham would cover it up and make it look as good as he could if it had been breast taken away or mastectomy or or various holes in the bodies, he would cover up and make it look as good as it could be. And we lost my brother David two years ago to metastatic cancer at uh, mm -hmm. about three years younger than you are now. And it happened in 10 weeks. He was just from diagnosis to death. It suddenly happened and it, very quick. I was still coming to terms with it now. And um, I, I've had a few sort of scares myself, but I'm, you know, still here but I, I'm just thinking, was there any lessons for you about um, the way you live your life to minimize getting cancer? Because, of course, you know, there's a lot we can do. What's your lessons uh, about what you can do to minimize the chances of cancer? Well, with, in my particular case, I think it was genetic. My mother died when she was 37 of cancer. Oh, wow. all, my uncles, all my uncles and one of my other aunties died of it as well. Um, so I think I inherited it. I mean, I don't smoke. Um, I've always been a light drinker and I don't drink at all these days. Um, I've always been very active and fit. So in spite of the fact that I followed all the 
all the best recommendations, I still ended up with um, I still end up with cancer. Um, but I do recommend that people try to live a healthy life. Mm. I do recommend that um, you know you avoid um, you obviously avoid smoking, you avoid obesity, and uh, I had an issue with obesity. I started to get quite portly uh, after getting ill. And um, I discovered intermittent fasting. So I have my breakfast and then I don't eat a damn thing until um, my evening meal. And then I don't eat a damn thing till breakfast. And uh, that's got me back on a level keel and my suits fit me again, <laughs> which is lovely. Um, I tried all sorts of other things, all sorts of diets. They didn't work and I can't run up and down mountains anymore. Hmm. So um, that works for me. My wife is an amazing cook. So the temptation is always there. So breakfast, I just get up, have whatever I want, but it's usually shreddies with some with some uh, freshly picked blackberries and some milk. And um, then Heather cooks me the most amazing meal of, of all sorts of descriptions in the evening. Um, but that works for me. So give it a try if you are if you're struggling. Yeah, well, no, I think I think it's uh, it's really good. And I've done three years of intermittent fasting um and and know that the, the power it has and how healthy it is also for um killing off cancerous cells um it, it's very good for that as you probably know as well you and i were talking as well earlier about um keeping yourself mentally healthy and how um it's very easy for people to to see those who get ptsd as victims but actually, uh, you met with a psychologist. I found that very interesting about this post-traumatic growth, but also that a number of people that you've known from B Squadron have sadly committed suicide, five of them, I think. But that the statistics are such that actually it doesn't seem more than the population, but people have this, perhaps this impression of the poor soldiers suffering from PTSD and taking their own lives that's more than the population. You want to say a bit mm. about, about mental health? Yeah, I did. Um, I helped... Uh... Uh, a woman, a woman called Dr. Lucy Longhurst, with a doctoral thesis, um, which was po called post-traumatic growth, and um, she went out. She went out there and examined um, and studied um, people who had served with the armed forces, and compared the statistics between the armed forces and the general civilian population, and she found that there wasn't any great difference between. The, the numbers of people per capita that uh, suffered from uh, PTSD in the armed forces as they did with the um, in the civilian population. There wasn't a huge difference at all. But uh, the modern media had uh, created um, some dramas and some stories about that, that gave the impression that every soldier who ever saw any kind of combat and battle was uh, was a victim, was suffering. Um, and a certain number of people latched onto this idea because it gave the impression that they were some kind of damaged hero. And uh, the government supported that by providing financial rewards for um, suffering from this particular condition. So where there were um, a small number of people who genuinely had problems and needed help, there were other people that needed, problem, needed help for a short period of time, myself included, and that the problem does exist, but there's also a, a larger number of people that have uh, found that it's um, it's a it's a tit to be milked, mm. and um, and and love the idea of wearing this badge on their chest, saying you know I I suffer from this, or uh, you see the same in um, 
in um, the the celebrity sort of circles where you know everybody has to claim that they were abused by their parents as a child mm. um, and that makes them some uh, an object of sympathy I don't think soldiers like to be objects of sympathy and I don't think they like to portray themselves as victims and um, personally I find it quite insulting that mm. um, we um, are given this kind of image by the media because I'm not damaged I will not be a victim and I, I refuse to lay down and and follow that party line, and um, and and I, I I'd rather be portrayed as a a wicked and evil, uncaring human being because I don't care than um, to suffer the indignity of being some poor suffering creature that you know, happened to take part in a battle thirty years ago, um, yeah. and want to be rewarded for it. Well, that, that, uh, it's refreshing to hear that viewpoint, and I very much like it, and and. Um... That takes me on to the next question, which is on emotional intelligence, EQ. And uh, if, if you're a heartless bastard, I mean, one of the things that uh, clearly um, when you were on the bars, uh, which I remember well that Mick was talking about shuffling along and, and uh, stepping over those knuckles, those scaffolding mm. knuckles and looking down and giving out my name, rank, number and date of birth. That's it. it sounds like Mick Lee had emotional intelligence. Mm. in spades but it's quite unusual it's not seen as something the military are known for but yeah. um over the years how have you developed emotion intelligence and and how do you listen well to other people yeah i think my biggest failing in life is i'm still not a great listener bloody good talker that's <laughs> <laughs> um so i'm i'm fortunate enough to have the other half of my life who has an enormous amount of emotional intelligence and she's always sitting in the background going, that's not a good idea. Rewrite that letter. Um, uh, have you considered, you know, you shouldn't really say that. That's not the best idea. Um, I still tend to sort of get facts down on paper and send them like memorandums. And she's said, look, why don't you just open that letter with, uh, uh, dear Mrs. Johnson, you know, um, I hope you're having a wonderful time. It's a pleasure to you know, do all the formalities that you would do when greeting an Arab in the desert. And uh, and then go into gently introduce the uh, issue you want to deal with. Um, so I've I've got better at it. I've got better at it, but I've got um, I've got a, a good teacher and a good support mechanism. Uh, there are people like Lofty um, who um, was a great listener and would always look at you, and you had that feeling of empathy uh, from him. He wanted to know where you were coming from. Um, I'm great at it with kids. I'm just not so good at it with adults. <laughs> yeah. Work in progress, maybe. Mm, uh, yeah. Always work in progress. Um, which takes me on to CQ, which is collaborative cultural intelligence, getting on with people who are very different from you. So there you were, um, you know, if you worked all over the world, you know, one minute you're in Sri Lanka, another minute for, for a long period of time, many, I think 15 months, you said you were in Mozambique. Those are people very different from you. How did you get on with people who are very different from you? I don't think Sri Lanka was long enough, but um, one of the things I do remember from Sri Lanka is um, the conscript soldiers that they had. We went out to do an ambush one night and um, we drove out about 15 miles, uh, parked the vehicle, left the driver with the vehicle, then marched into the ambush position, which was about another five miles. Laid the ambush all night, uh, didn't get um, a target come through and then um, evacuated just before first light. 
and we marched back to the vehicle and the vehicle was gone. And then we marched the 15 miles back to the uh, camp, a place called Mardroya, and um, discovered the driver in the barracks. I said, where did you go? And he said, oh, sir. He said, I was frightened. I was afraid of the dark and I, I decided to come home. <laughs> it's just a, okay where do we go where do we go from here so um we weren't um authorized to give punishments but um we had to make sure that in the future there was um uh, an officer that remained with the vehicle as well um mozambique um i was with my soldiers for long periods of time and uh, you fell in love with them and um we used to sing together um, I would teach them my military songs and they would teach me their Portuguese uh, songs. And when we were out running in the morning or marching, um, we would share those songs. And um, I think singing is a wonderful way of bonding people together mentally. Um, and I think there's two things in life you can't do and be unhappy. Uh, one is dance and the other is sing. And we don't sing enough. We really, really don't sing enough. We had a, my wife's 65th birthday party here recently. And my son, Oliver, my two sons were at the top singing um, uh, Tenacious D tribute at the top and uh, top of the garden. My daughter was singing. I was singing. Everybody was singing. Hewell was playing the guitar. And, um, you know, everybody came away saying what a wonderful evening and afternoon it was because we sang. Yeah. Um, I mean, I live in, I live in Wales and, you know, if you want to, if you want to, if you want to listen to singing at its absolute best, um, the Eisteddfod in Wales is just unbelievable. It's emotion. Yeah. It's it unites people. It's wonderful. We don't do yeah. it enough. You're so right. And um, my late mother-in-law used to uh, Marguerite, who's Irish, used to live with us here. And in the last three years of her life, she um, had a combination of uh, heart disease, lung disease, uh, cancer, and um, Alzheimer's. She couldn't really have much else um but we made her evenings when lee and i sang with her and we'd get out the oldies and we'd all sing together and she was great she was a pianist and 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 could play the piano as well and i i will always remember those um last three they're just quick fire questions resilience uh then brand how you think you're perceived by others and legacy what you'd like your legacy to be what, what would be a tip on picking yourself up in times of adversity gosh you you do lots of lectures on this but what would be a tip for you on picking yourself up in times of adversity? Yeah, I think never let the bastards get you down, <laughs> really. You know, um, no matter what people say, no matter what people do, if you think it's got merit, then learn something from it and take it aboard. But if you don't think it's got merit and disagree with it, you know, um, who was it? Um, Bob Hoskins went to join the Royal uh, Shakespeare Company and he was on East End London or, or Giza. And uh, there he is in the Royal Shakespeare Company, and there's an awful lot of middle-class snobbery there. And he went home and told his mother. And his mother said, Bob, if they haven't got the brains to value you, fuck them. <laughs> you know, and look what happened to his life. You know, it's an yeah. awesome Shakespearean actor as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think you've got to be bloody-minded and, uh, you know, believe in yourself. And uh, you know, never let the bastards get you down because the you know, never and never put yourself down because there's always a volunteer who'll do that for you. <laughs> yeah, well, isn't that like the famous line? I didn't come here to be insulted. 
To which the reply was, where do you normally go to get insulted? (laughs) Okay. um, Yeah. How, how do you think you're perceived by others? What's your, what's your, I I don't know if you remember those um, uh, things, those trends that used to go around is what kind of animal do you think you are? Mm -hmm. So um, I, uh, I asked my students one day, um, you know, writing a piece of paper, what sort of animal they thought I represented because I saw myself as a tiger or a wolf. And uh, the majority of them came back with elephants, which I actually found really, really complimentary and endearing when I thought about it. But it was a surprise. So they they, they thought I was an elephant. Um, so I'd have to ask them why they thought that. I didn't want to pu- push it too hard. I was quite happy, with, <laughs> you know, not getting snake. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. That's a, that's a so, good one. That's yeah. a good one. And um, legacy. What would you like uh, your legacy to be uh, when you eventually do pass? And hopefully it's many years from now, but you've had a few close runs. But Robin, what would you like your legacy to be? I was asked this. um, I did a a talk uh, in Birmingham at the National Exhibition Centre. I was standing in for Tony Curtis, the famous um, Mm -hmm. 1960s film star, because he was ill. And... um, I was asked this at short notice and I said, well, look, you know, there were all sorts of people there. There were, uh, there were astronauts there. There was Dave Scott who had landed on the moon. There was uh, Lindsay Wagner who had been the bionic woman. There was all sorts of wonderful and uh, famous celebrities there. And um, I had to stand up and say something poignant to these people. And I said, well, you, you can land on the moon. You could make a million pounds. You can be the greatest CEO on earth. You can, um, you can do the most wonderful things in your life, but when it comes to the absolute end, the greatest accolade that anybody can give you is to say, he was a good man. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully put. Thank you. Teams is the next question. You've <laughs> had to form many teams in mm-hmm. many places whether it be karate or when you've got a bunch of fellow bodyguards um, who all have their own egos and want to do their own thing or parachute regiment or special forces. Um, What do you do when one of the teams has gone toxic and how do you deal with it? How do you know it's gone toxic? Yeah, it's uh, teams are like, um, are like songs. Somebody singing flat in the choir and uh, it, it stands out and you've got to locate it. And it spoils it for everybody because, you know, in a team, you've all got to dance to the same tune or sing the same song, whether you like it or not. And so you've got to persuade that individual that it's beneficial to everybody to go with the party line. And if they can't, that it's beneficial to the group for them to leave it. Um, If you can persuade them to sing along, then that's great. That's, that's, That's a wonderful job as a a leader and a commander. If you're stuck with that person, whether you want him or not, that's a difficult place to be Um, because you don't want him. The rest of the team don't want him. You've got the challenge of trying to change him or try to put him into a place where he's going to do the least amount of damage, but he's always going to be that dissonant note Mm -hmm. at the, uh, at the back of the song. Um, And, you know, it's, 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 it's a work. It's a, it's a, it's, 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 it's a challenge for you as a leader as well. Um, team leaders, team leaders, I don't like the word leader with it, managers, 
our coaches really they have to get the different types of personality to work together alistair mcalpine wrote a book called um the new machiavelli he took over british steel for margaret thatcher in the 70s and the new machiavelli and he talks about different types of personalities in different organizations and as a ceo how you need all these different types of personality it's just putting them in the right place in order to get the right result and the one thing he focused on very very strongly was having a loyal lieutenant who will tell you what you don't want to hear <laughs> um as an essential part of your star which yeah. a lot of ceos fail to do that's so true and, and, and at any level i always encourage them to get a good number two uh, mm. someone who will challenge them is different from them uh we'll we'll be able to see the the, the bit they can't see a penultimate question, uh, Robin, uh, a favourite book and why would you recommend that people read it or listen to it? I mean, clearly you've produced five, so we won't go with your own, which are brilliant, but it's mm -hmm. somebody else. Who would you recommend and, and why is it a good book on leadership, for example? Well, we talked about people that um, had inspired me and the two I was thinking of were, you know, in my lifetime and still alive. Um, there was a person who... Um, a book I read um, who was inspirational absolutely inspirational and I can highly recommend that story his story if you want to be inspired and that's mm -hmm. um, his name was group captain uh, Leonard Cheshire VC oh wow yeah who started Cheshire Homes and he was in the Dambusters squadron in the second world war um, flew something like a hundred missions over Germany and France um, and began uh, looking after down and outs with a, in his own home where he had a spare room and then developed it up eventually. Um, a deep faith, a deep religious faith, um, which was very, very important to him and uh, was fundamental with his core values and his integrity. But it's called Group Captain Leonard Cheshire VC, and I highly recommend it to anybody that wants to be inspired by somebody who's going to make you want to follow that example. Brilliant. I will definitely get that, and I will listen to it if it's an audio book. If not, I will read it, as I'm going to look forward to reading yours. Uh, Robin, would you finally introduce yourself, say a little bit about yourself for those uh, as a standalone piece for the two-minute top tip? And um, then we'll wrap up after that. Sorry, I didn't quite get that. Um... So, so just to int introduce yourself. <laughs> yeah. um, give them a flavor, as you did at the very beginning, of some of the different things you've done. And give us a two-minute top leadership tip, if you would. Ah, okay. I'm Robin Horsfall. I'm a former parachute regiment soldier, an SAS soldier, um, a bodyguard, a paramedic, a sniper, a mountaineer. Uh, a martial arts instructor, a speaker, a blogger, a blagger, and um, and uh, and a writer. And um, if I had one thing to say that was going to be a recommendation for people who want to be leaders, who want to inspire, who want to take their company or their business or their football team forward in the future, I would say that you've got to have ice. I-C-E, ICE, integrity, courage, and example. If you've got those three things, then 
you have the foundations of leadership. The one thing I can't give you is charisma. You need to develop that. <laughs> I love that. I really do. Well, Robin Horsfall, thank you very much indeed for being on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. Um, you live up to the inspiration that many people have accredited you with, uh, along with a lovely bit of humility and some great stories as well. So thank you very much. And I wish you every success as a speaker publicly and uh, with the books that you produce, which everybody is going to enjoy reading. But thank you for being on the series. Thanks, Jonathan. A real pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening. We hope we've ignited your curiosity and broadened your perspectives. My guests and I provide this service to you for free. All we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader you know, so they also benefit too. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your podcast platform. We value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website, jonathanperks.com, where you can sign up for your weekly podcast newsletter. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman Perks, and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You can hear another unique guest next Tuesday. Goodbye. Goodbye.